On this episode of Omnivore, chemical concerns in the food chain, leveraging social media for product development, and what it's really like to pitch your product on Shark Tank. This is episode 30 of Omnivore from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by IFT's Global Food Traceability Center. Get ahead of FDA's Food Traceability Rule compliance deadline with the Enterprise Traceability Education Suite, your unbiased source for comprehensive traceability training. Learn more at ift.org traceability. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. We've all read the headlines about heavy metals found in dry infant formula, or the news coverage on PFAS, the acronym for a group of synthetic chemicals widely used in food packaging. Or perhaps you've heard about brominated vegetable oil, or BVO, a chemical compound that was banned last fall from carbonated beverages and other foods by the state of California, and now is under further scrutiny by the FDA. These chemicals of concern are very much on the radar of food producers looking to mitigate hazard risks in their products and processes. Food Technologies Julie Larson Brisher asked IFT Science Program Director Tracy Fink about best practice strategies food businesses can use to mitigate these risks. Well, hi, Tracy. It's great to catch up with you again today. Hi, Julie. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's uh, dive right in then. Let's talk a little bit about what you think are some of the most concerning, if you will, of the chemicals of concern in the food industry today and why. Sure, Julie. Well, There are a lot of chemicals of concern, but we'll focus on three today. And these chemicals are concerning due to their widespread use, potential health implications, and their persistent nature in the environment. Through ongoing research, regulatory changes, and even litigation, it's important to address these kind of concerns and to ensure that we have safety of the food supply chain and protect public health. So the three items would be your PFAS, heavy metals, and brominated vegetable oil, or BVO. So PFAS is of concern because it's often used in their cookware, food packaging, and food processing due to their nonstick properties. Uh, The concern arises from their persistence in the environment and the potential health risks associated with their consumption. And heavy metals such as lead, arsenic, mercury, nickel, and others also pose serious health risks when present in uh, excess in food. And of particular concern is contamination in the high-risk population, such as infants, young adults. And studies have indicated links between exposure to heavy metals in food and the risk of cancer and other life-threatening diseases. And then lastly, our BVO has been used in the past in certain beverages, and it has gained widespread attention due to the health concerns related to the bromine content And so what studies have shown is that overconsumption may lead to health issues, particularly impacting the thyroid um, due to the bromine potentially competing with iodine. And so there are some current research and different potential regulatory changes that may be in the, the works right now regarding addressing that concern. 
do you have any tips on effective ways to mitigate risk for all of these chemicals? Or are they different? Yeah, certainly, Julie. So it sounds cliche, but I'll give you the two biggest ways that we can mitigate the risk. And again, I'm going to say it over and over, but HACCP, HACCP, HACCP. And I would also say risk management strategies. So let's dive into those. When we think about HACCP and hazard analysis and critical control points, you know, we want to identify potential chemical hazards associated with anything from raw materials to the processes to the final product and understand the specific risks posed by things such as PFAS, heavy metals, BVO in each stage of the production. Uh, we want to establish and identify, you know, critical control points, implement preventive measures, corrective action, preventive action. This is a regulated industry. And so this is a way that we can integrate preventive measures such as testing and verification to ensure the absence of hazardous chemicals at critical control points. And then regularly monitoring and verification where we implement robust monitoring systems and continuously assess these chemical hazards. This is not a one and done or a one-off. This is a constant need and um, we need to regularly verify the effectiveness of our control measures and update them based on new information. And then moving to that second point is that risk management strategy is we really should stay informed on regulations. As I mentioned earlier, as a regulated industry, these regulations are constantly being updated and we should have you know updated knowledge we should also put forth a voice and when they're asking for open comments from the industry and, and researchers and scientists, people should put forth their comments related to PFAS, heavy metals, and BVOs and ensure compliance with the latest guidelines to meet those regulatory standards. Good advice, Tracy, especially about HACCP. So let's say you're a food processor who's identified that heavy metals are a risk. How do they go about identifying the relevant critical control points? Sure. So we would want to identify points in the production process where the control is crucial to prevent, eliminate, or reduce chemical hazards. And every production line will be different and every facility raw ingredient. So the complexity is vast. And so what we can do is um, have things documented um, have people understand the importance of establishing critical control points. If we were to look at an example, you know, and this is a tough one and I'll, I'll throw it out there, but um, dry infant formula, for example, and, and look at mitigating the risk of mercury found in there. Um, you, you want to look at those processes. You want to work with experts, both internally and externally, that can help you identify the raw material the procurement, the sourcing and the goods to say, you know, this is where and what this ingredient is. Um, this is the risk associated with it. And then how can we process, improve or process it out? Um, how can we validate that, monitor it? I'm giving a very high level example, but it's really takes a holistic teamwork from both the production side, corporate, uh, I'd say researchers and scientists, really the community to work together and find the best practices to take things like the critical control point example and this specific food ingredient example, which is a high risk, and to find ways to mitigate the example that I gave of the mercury and the heavy metal in an infant formula, dry infant formula example. 
So it, there's there's really no exact answer, Julie, but I hope I gave a high level example of of um, establishing a critical control point. That's great. And, you know, speaking of best practices, do you have any you can suggest for processors or product developers within that space when it comes to chemicals of concerns like BVO, PFAS, heavy metals? Are there some over like one to rule them all type of (laughs) suggestions? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the best practices that I would say Number one would be stay informed on regulatory changes. And I had mentioned this earlier that we want to regularly monitor and stay informed about the regulatory changes coming down the pipeline, whether it's FDA or USDA here domestically or even internationally, uh, because we do need to look at, you know, where is this product going? So you not only need to pay attention to the regulatory requirements for the products uh, locally sourced and locally being consumed by, you know, for example, this domestic example, but also if it's going to another country, you need to be able to meet those uh, regulatory uh, requirements that are for that country of which the product is going into as well. And then be prepared to adapt formulations based on updated regulations. So your team should have in place documentation as to how to do change management to adapt different ingredients that might have to be substituted in, different formulations that might have to be changed and how to execute on that. So when we look at an ingredient substitution, we should explore alternative ingredients to, for example, replace BVOs in product formulations. We know that the beverage industry had used that in some of the more lemon-lime type uh, soda drinks, for example. So collaborating with suppliers to identify suitable substitutes that meet those regulatory requirements and yet also, I guess, meet or exceed the consumer preferences for the product that they're used to consuming. Well, thanks, Tracy. That is terrific advice. And as always, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks, Julie. Well, I I do appreciate the opportunity today. And I'm glad that we could talk a little bit about how to incorporate these best practices, processes and product development type conversation to enhance food safety and regulatory compliance and also just consumer trust to protect public health. So thank you. Tracy Fink is the Director of Scientific Programs and Science and Policy Initiatives at the Institute of Food Technologists. You can find her article, Best Practices for Chemical Hazards, in the February issue of Food Technology. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor. your business to reduce the negative impacts of recalls with IFT's new one-stop resource, the Enterprise Traceability Education Suite. Known for its impartiality, IFT's Global Food Traceability Center developed the comprehensive Enterprise Traceability Education Suite as the only education solution designed to quickly help get your entire organization up to speed on key traceability concepts. Get practical steps to designing an effective and cost-efficient traceability program. With IFT's Enterprise Traceability Suite, you save valuable time and money in preparing for FDA's traceability rule, January 2026 compliance deadline. Find out more at ift.org traceability. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. There are more than 5 billion 
social media users in the world today. That's more than 61% of the world's population, so it's no wonder that companies are looking for a way to use the insights and data gleaned from these platforms to inform their product development processes. Food Technologies Associate Editor Emily Little spoke with Andrew Cecilla, Partner and Managing Director for Alex Partners Consultancy, to discuss how food and beverage companies are using social media and AI not only to develop new products, but to continually improve what's already on the market. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today, and I'm excited to talk about product development. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So what insights does social media offer for food and beverage companies that consumer surveys or maybe focus groups don't? Yeah, I think that's a great question to start out with. I think traditional surveys um, that a lot of companies use is they try to get as much information as possible from a broad, as broad of a source as possible. And sometimes that takes days, weeks, or in some instances, months, depending on the target audience that you'd like to get. I think what we're seeing with the benefits of social media is you're getting more real-time trends and reactions to the questions or the areas that you may be probing. So social media platforms give you an instant pulse, give you real-time insights, and actually it allows you to actually have an engagement with the consumer versus a survey that could be a one-off and it sometimes is anonymous. For product development, companies are trying to leverage social media and AI to identify white space or new needs and trends that may not be as obvious to the marketing team, to the engineering team, to the sales team. So a lot, what a lot of food and beverage companies are doing now is to leverage AI to really find those, those new areas. And the sooner you can do that can create new opportunities for the companies. So the way they are doing this is they're trying to get out as early as possible with what they may call, say, a smoke test is a, is a common term where they may try and get new ideas, new insights across multiple areas at a really lower cost than they would if they were going to start building a prototype or an initial concept of the item. So as you think about a product development team, they may throw out 10 or 15 new ideas, and that would take anywhere from six to nine to 12 months. But with AI, you can do that arguably in weeks versus months to really hone in on and really refine the testing concepts. And so what companies are doing is they're leveraging AI. They're trying to get out there faster. But then also what they're doing, once they have the products in market, they're able to modify and enhance the product post-launch. And so when you're post-launch, they're getting the insight much quicker to where they can start tweaking and modifying either the recipes, the product packaging, what have you, uh, to really, really enhance the product. And with that quicker timeline, how are you advising your clients on the risks that are inherent with that? You want to meet customers' needs right away, but you know maybe some things are missed along the way. How are you advising them? The challenge you have or the potential risk you have is the speed to market. The faster you go, sometimes you may oversee uh, an insight. You may launch the product prematurely. So a lot of people say it's not about being first. It's about being right with the product. So there's a balance of speed 
without compromising quality and delivery. And so what I believe AI offers or social media offers is the, sh the quicker feedback loop that you have from a product. Traditionally, when you launch a product, you have to go out and market, you do a lot of testing, you then come back. But I think the AI offers you to almost do that in parallel where you can launch a product, tweak it while it's almost, you know, they say building the plane uh, while you're flying it. And so I think AI and social media allows you to do that much quicker. So what companies need to be careful about is the risks in a shorter development timeline is potential for poor quality where you're rushing that product and it could be arguably from inadequate testing could lead to safety concerns or inconsistent quality. There's reputational damage. So there could be a risk that if you launch something too quickly and you oversee or overlook um, an item or an attribute that could damage the brand and really shut down the product launch. And that naturally contributes to higher costs due to the errors. So those are some things that I think companies need to be aware of with the, the risks of that shorter development timeline. So you're saying, you know, this shorter timeline is great, but keep that quality. Exactly. Yes, 100%. You, you always have to be mindful of the quality of the product. And depending if it's a food, a beverage, or even consumer electronics product, you have to be careful of that, that quality because quality is number one. And that can really churn off the consumer. And nowadays with social media and social media influencers, they will capitalize on any quality disruptions that are out there. And that can just crash a product so quickly, quicker than you had thought of by using uh, AI and really the benefits of that. What advice would you give to a small to mid-sized food and beverage company who's looking to tap into social media as a tool? Well, I think they have to be careful about um, potential overinvestment in AI in social media. I think there are opportunities to start slow and to really figure out what your goals and objectives are um, with your either leveraging social media or AI. Is there an unmet need out there? Are you trying to pressure test a specific concept? Are you trying to build brand awareness? So you have to be careful about really defining and being smart about defining the goals. You also have to think about what platform you're going to use. A lot of people, a lot of companies, when they think about AI and social media, they quickly go to ChatGPT, they quickly go to Bard to think about how they can leverage that. And, you know, those are great tools to use for AI. You can leverage, you know, social listening and drop it into these AI tools. But you want to be careful about where you choose your platform because, of either security or of really, are you picking the right target audience? And I think there's always the feedback loop of, you know, start slow, try and get some initial um, feedback from either your consumer or from the initial testing before you just jump into the deep end of the pool uh, and go all in on, on social media and AI. And so I think there's, there's, there's always a, what we are seeing with companies is they hear the words AI, they are being engaged with social media, they hear the benefits of AI to reduce the cycle time for product development. So they want the reaction quick, they want to go fast, but fast doesn't always mean good, as we had mentioned with the quality aspect of things and what your brand needs to be thinking about. So you really need to be measured in how fast you go uh, with social media and AI. 
And then it's also important that once you do start down this journey is that you listen to what the data is telling you as you go. So you're going to get a lot of data, you're going to get a lot of insights. And so you'll have to be able to analyze these trends, be careful about the volume of data that you're going to get um, and don't overanalyze. But more importantly, when you get those rich insights, how are you going to action those? So how are you going to turn those insights into actions? So just don't think about collecting the data and putting it on a shelf. You really have to have a discussion and conversation amongst your team, with your engineers, with your product development team, with your marketing team, with your sales team, and really think about how you're going to be able to leverage that data. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for talking to me today and hope to yeah. talk to you soon. Andrew Cecilla, Partner and Managing Director for Alex Partners Consultancy, has worked with global consumer products, private equity, and investment clients on strategic and operational topics. Read more about how food and beverage companies are utilizing social media insights in their product development processes in the February issue of Food Technology. Appearing on Shark Tank has become a rite of passage and a catapult to growth for dozens of food entrepreneurs since the show launched nearly 15 years ago. Watching the reaction of Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary as he takes his first bite makes for good television, and one of the show's frequent guest hosts, Daniel Lubitsky, is a bonafide role model as the founder of Kind Snacks, New York-based Burlap and Barrel which sells single-origin spices, appeared on the show in 2023. Although they didn't notch a Shark Tank deal, co-founders Ethan Frisch and Ori Zohar say the real prize of being on Shark Tank is the exposure to a primetime audience of more than 4 million viewers. Julie Larson Brisher caught up with Ori Zohar to get a few tips on creating a tank-level pitch and how to make the most of the experience. Hi, Ari. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. Well, you know, even though Burlap and Barrel didn't notch a deal on Shark Tank, co-founder Ethan Frisch mentioned that the exposure to such a huge television audience for your startup was reward enough. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how it benefited your company? Yeah, even before we went on Shark Tank, we spoke to dozens of other entrepreneurs who had been on Shark Tank previously. And what we heard from them time and time again is as long as the sharks understand and like your product, everything else is gravy. And so we were really happy to, to have made that pass. There's many rounds of cutting all the way to getting to what ends up on air. But what we learned is that around 4 million people watch the show as it airs. Millions more watch it later online. Um, and so really the most powerful part of Shark Tank, in my opinion, is, is really getting in front of that huge new audience. And what we found is that they're, they're really receptive. We heard from a lot of folks, and this is our experience too, that people really shop the show. People watch Shark Tank, but they also want to fall in love with a company, with a founder, with a new product. They want to find something new to try or gift. And so for us, that was a huge, huge opportunity was to really introduce ourselves prime time Friday night to millions and millions of people across the U.S. And so that was really, really valuable for us to be able to do. Well, you know, I actually, I heard uh, from Ethan that you were actually the mastermind of getting you guys onto Shark Tank. What, what, what inspired you to even go there? 
Um, my my mother, <laughs> my mother is an avid avid Shark Tank watcher. Throughout the whole life of our company, my mom would call me and be like, "I saw on Shark Tank that they did this, and the investor said that, and it was really good advice, and so you should do that." And so, just time and time again, kind of Shark Tank kept coming into our lives. A as a window into like the early stage financials and kind of what's going on with kind of new food companies, how they're pitching themselves, where they're getting into, what their numbers are. So it ended up being something that like we were watching regularly to learn and educate ourselves. Because where else is a founder standing up in front of the public and being like, "My first year revenues were this, the second year was this," and so Shark Tank ended up becoming a kind of part of our business journey. A from the the nudging of my mother, but B, Ethan and I were just watching it to learn about other companies in the field and, and in the food, and they love CPG, consumer packaged good companies. And so we got to learn a lot from it. And so we started reaching out to other entrepreneurs who had been on the show, heard from so many of them that it was this really incredible and transformative experience for their businesses. So then we started reaching out and asking them to connect us with their producers. And then, and then kind of we were in play, starting to talk to them and finding out a way to get in there. But Man, it's it's a long process between when we first had the idea to finally being on the show, um, and and I'm happy to share more of what that involved. Oh my gosh! Well, what did you find most surprising about the experience of pitching once you did get on the show? I think that when we watch TV, we assume that that what is happening on the screen is kind of how it's happened behind the scenes, and so like you watch Chop, then you're like, wow, look at them going through all these ingredients and coming up together. You watch Shark Tank and you're like, what a fast paced, intense thing. And for us, the day of filming on Shark Tank started at 7 or 8 a.m. Uh, we went through hair and makeup and wardrobe and practice and practice and microphone and all that stuff. And so by the time we actually got in front of the sharks, we had been on the lot for, I don't know, five or six hours. And then you get in front of the sharks and, and we filmed for almost an hour. It's hard to tell time. You don't have your phone in there. The lights are bright. There are cameras pointing at you from every single direction. And so like what, what we ended up filming was about a 45 minute, maybe hour long take. And then that got cut into an eight minute, super fast paced TV segment. So the most surprising thing was that this was a full day activity. We were chatting with the sharks. We kind of felt low stakes in the room, right? As you're talking to them, they were all really friendly. The Shark Tank theme was playing in our heads as we were walking down the, the hallway. Um, but really, there was this TV magic that then took that hour that we spent in the room with the sharks and cut it into this fast-paced kind of eight-minute, like primetime TV action-packed, you know, segment that that we really loved. Did that lag in time between all that sort of preparation ahead of time and then the actual pitch? Did that kind of throw you off a little bit or did it hype you up? Yeah, we were standing for maybe five or 10 minutes outside of the doors to go onto the shark tank. And you're just a bundle of nerves when you're going on there and and they're going to film what they film and they can use anything that you do in that room. So I was a bundle of nerves. It energizes you. But like by the end of it, you feel totally like all the adrenaline is just flushed out of your system. And we just needed to sit in a quiet room afterwards to kind of calm down and, and steady our hands after such a high intensity experience that, that lasted for so long. Right. Well, now, do you have any tips or advice for uh, food startups who want to pitch on the show? Yeah, it took us a long time to get on the show. So people think you apply and then you go. And we really, we applied first in 2021. And then they said, sorry, there's a too similar of a company that season. So we stayed in touch until 2022. And then we ended up filming 
in we in March they assigned us with producers, and then we spent between March and September working with the producers to really hone in our pitch and make it shorter and make it more entertaining and make it more fun and make it more this and that. And how do we really cut it down into two minutes? And we filmed in September and then we just waited. And so we waited until to see if it would air because they film more than they air. And so we waited and we ultimately ended up airing in April of 2023. So think about this as an idea that we had that tried to get in in 2021 to ultimately airing, you know, in April of 2023, there was a long time in between and it's a lot of work and we had to hone in our pitch and try different angles. And what does the background look like? And what does the table look like? And how do we, you know, convey it? Cause ultimately what was really helpful for us was understanding that shark tank first and foremost, sure is a business show, but it's an entertainment show and they want to have good TV. And so we had to kind of figure out how our business and our business story about being a single origin spice company, about being building direct, you know, supply chains with smallholder farmers around the world how does that fit into fun, entertaining, captivating? How do we throw spices around? We ended up tearing off our outfits. We came in with one outfit representing me as a business person, Ethan as a chef, and ended up throwing it in the air. And so we had to find ways to really tell the company of our story in a captivating, entertaining, and fun way that would make for really good TV. And so once that kind of clicked in our heads, it became a lot easier to find a way to tell the story of our company through that lens. Right. Well, you know, what what's going on with um, Burlap and Barrel today? And do you think the company would have broken out of, you know, startup mode as quickly if you hadn't pitched on Shark Tank? Or were you real busy the whole time between all this? Oh, my God. We've been so busy. Shark Tank came at a great time for our company. I mean, we were we were already uh, had six years of, of building and running Burlap and Barrel under our belt at that point. And that was that was great. We were maybe one of the older companies that came on there. Often you hear people coming on selling 25% of their company for like they just started. This is year one, year zero for their company. We were already a little bit more experienced. Um, so we got ready for it and we had pre-built this bundles because you don't know if you're going to air and they only tell you a couple of weeks ahead of time, which is a supply chain challenge, to put it lightly, uh, to plan for a thing that may or may not happen. But when Shark Tank aired, we had two of our biggest days of sales in the history of the company on Friday night between 8 p.m. and midnight and then all day Saturday. And then that wave just continued for the next few weeks and brought a lot of new customers into our business. So Shark Tank was really big and helped us kind of come out on this national stage and share our story of, of a single origin spice company. And so that was really helpful and helped accelerate our growth. But we had to do a ton of work into that. We had to then be prepared for that. And then by the time you have tens of thousands of people simultaneously on your site, we had to then deliver the goods because, oh my God, all of a sudden we had to go from shipping, you know, a few dozen, if maybe a couple hundred to a couple thousand orders a day. And so that really was a big wave that moved through our business and, and customers aren't going to stick around. Um, so we had stuff on Amazon. We had, we had spices on our site. We really were ready to take people in in whatever way they were ready to come in and give us a chance. But we heard horror stories from a lot of companies that finally got on Shark Tank, immediately sold out. And then everybody's like, okay, well, they're not ready to sell anything to me. Their product is out. I'm not going to stick around. So we put so much work and effort into getting ready for that big wave to hit our business and really win over all these new customers that were giving us a little bit of their attention. We wanted to then capture that, find them something really nice to get. We had our Shark Tank bundle on there. Um, and then follow up, ship it out quickly, follow up from customer support, make sure they had a great time and they knew how to use the spices and turn them in from people that like just gave us attention to load our site 
into lifelong customers. And so Shark Tank really helped accelerate the growth of our business. It made our 2023. And now every time that the episode re-airs, as they do, and we see another bump coming into our business of new customers. So we, we were so happy. So we didn't, we didn't get a deal on the show, but I think we got the larger prize, which is being able to tell our story in front of millions of Americans and tell them about how they should be revamping their spice cabinet in a major way. And we were the ones to help them do it. Okay. Thanks, Ori, for those notes that they're really helpful to the food startups out there looking to, um, well, forgive the pun, spice up their pitches. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'd say is that we we reached out to a lot of entrepreneurs that had been on the show. Start there if you're curious about it. Hear what other people's experiences, people, including me, are more than happy to talk about it. And so just reach out, talk to some folks and start understanding if the show is a good fit for you and what you kind of need to stand out among the crowd there. Ori Zohar is the co-founder and co-CEO of the single-origin spice company Burlap & Barrel. Read more about Burlap & Barrel's entrepreneurial swim in the Shark Tank, as well as takeaways from other food startups in our February feature, Primetime Lessons in Entrepreneurship. you to this episode's sponsor, IFT's Global Food Traceability Center. Get ahead of FDA's Food Traceability Rule January 2026 compliance deadline with the Enterprise Traceability Education Suite, your one-stop resource for comprehensive traceability training. Empower your workforce with this efficient and cost-effective training tool at www.ift.org traceability. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, Check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of IFT.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at IFT.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.